We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We're continuing this Lenten series on becoming like Jesus. Everything begins with the gospel, with God's initiative and his initiating love, that Jesus is Lord. That produces disciples whose goal it is, is to become like Jesus, to grow to be like Jesus in our lives, to love as he loved, to walk on the way of the cross, the way of love. We're now in the middle of considering four dimensions of the Christian life that when we take them up, we, are, we then begin to grow more and more into maturity. And those are worship, or up, community, in, mission, out, and catechesis, which means to teach or to instruct, deep and down. Last week, we looked at worship. We were on this vertical axis. So that vertical axis of up and deep, of worship and catechesis, is more primarily focused on loving God. And then today, we're starting with this horizontal axis. We'll come back to catechesis in a couple of weeks to finish up the vertical. But today, we'll jump into community, and then next week into mission. Community and mission, more about loving our neighbor and those with, who are within the community, in, in worship, or in, in this community, and then in mission, those who are outside of the church family as well. We're called to love them. Uh, our text today is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 16. It's on page 977. I invite you to turn to that text. Paul's exhortation and teaching about Christian community, the church. And I should say that this church, though it may feel somewhat normal and ordinary to us, is a radical new thing in the world. The collection and gathering of believers who have been called by God, set apart as his chosen people, who are living now a life renewed in the power of the gospel, empowered by the Spirit to walk in a new way. We have a whole new ethic, a whole new way that is set before us, and a new kind of life to live together and to demonstrate to the world. And it's this life that we're going to see Paul expound a bit in Ephesians chapter 4. I want to look at just at the primary teaching of this text, kind of considered from a slightly... Um, higher point of view, and then I, I want us to think about two ways that we, uh, two, amp, two um, applications of this in our lives, and then think about how those applications may be undermined or defeated by common threads within the human heart. So the first thing, the overarching teaching of Ephesians 4 is unity in diversity that produces maturity. So I just want to take those three things basically and lay them out. Unity, verse 4. There is one body, just one, one body. We are one. And this body is, in verse 12, referred to as the body of Christ. And then after that, that we learn in verse 15 that Christ is the head of this body. In other words, because we have responded to the gospel in repentance and faith, and we are now unioned with Christ, we belong to him, we also therefore then belong to one another, and individually we are members of one body, the body of Christ. So Paul urges the, the churches in Asia Minor to whom this letter was sent in verse 3 to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This unity that God has given as a gift in the gospel. So we are one. We're not just one, though, so the second word is diversity. We are different. By God's design and grace, we are different from one another. We have different functions and different 
God-given gifts. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace has been given to you according to the measure of Christ's gift, and that is different in different people. Uh, which is to say that we are not all the same, which is great news, actually. It would be really boring if we were all the same. Uh, and it would also be a problem, as Paul writes in, when he's dealing with the body metaphor in 1 Corinthians 12, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? We need one another, being different from one another. We depend on one another. So unity and diversity. And then where does this lead in this text? It leads to maturity. Verse 13, what is the goal of all of this? It is that we attain, we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is to say, we are growing into Christ-likeness together. We're being transformed to become more like Jesus together. Verse 15, we are to grow up into him who is the head, into Christ. We're growing up. The method for this growth to maturity is each part, each diverse part that is unified in one body, working properly. That's verse 16. When each part is working properly, this makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's think about a few of the parts. Church leaders are mentioned in verse 11 in these offices, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher. They are to do their part. What is their part? Well, it is to equip the saints, it says in verse 12. The relationship between church leaders and the congregation is not a relationship of service provider and client, of entertainer and audience, of social organizer and activists, of program manager and volunteer help. It is rather as an equipper, an equipper to the saints. And how does this equipping happen primarily? Well, each of those offices mentioned in, in verse uh, 11 deal with the word of God. They traffic in God's word. And in particular, this would be true, of course, for shepherds and teachers, which is the ongoing most common office that we have in the church today. We are dealing in the word of God in order to nourish the people of God with his life-giving word. And leaders serve in this way, not working out of their, or working out their own insecurities, not to build some kind of brand or name for themselves, though some do attempt to do this, not peddling the word of God for profit, as it says in 2 Corinthians 2, but they do this out of a, the way of love. This is what it means to walk in the way of love, to allow Christ to increase, us to de decrease, to walk in this in humility, taking up the cross as word-saturated servants. This is what your leaders should do. This is what I should do. This is what those of us serving in these roles should do. That's one part of working properly. What about the saints? By the way, that's all of you. You may not feel like a saint, but this is the biblical word for a New Testament believer. You are saints, holy ones, set-apart ones. What does it say that these leaders are to equip the saints for what? For the work of ministry. This is verse 12. For the building up of the body of Christ. Ministry is the word diakonos, translated ministry here, but it could just as accurately and rightly be said for the work of service. Service is the same word. You're being equipped for the work of service, for building up the body of Christ, bearing the burdens of others, attending to the lives and needs of others, and therefore fulfilling the law of Christ. This service, by the way, implies relationships. Why would I say that from this text? Because in verse 15, a part of this service of one another is speaking the truth in love. I don't think you really do that unless you're actually engaged in relationship with one another. 
and you come from a place of bondedness and relationship in Christ to speak the gospel and its implications in life to one another. And that is a part of the work. By the way, this is, again, the way of the cross. This is the way of love advocated here. Each part working properly means serving, laying down your life for the people around you, in this case, in the community of God's body, the the body of Christ. And this building up through serving with each part working properly, and I should say, in love, the very last words of our text, so that it builds itself up in love. It is love that drives the Christian life. It is love that fuels the Christian community. It's love that is the way of the Christian life, the way of the cross, the way of love. And so all of these things are going on in love. And this, of course, then leads to maturity. It's a great picture, isn't it, that Paul gives us here of of diversity, unity, working toward maturity. We are one, we are different, and we are growing to become mature. And I should say, this is mission critical. This isn't some kind of, like, minor important thing. This is mission critical. Look at verse 14. Paul says, I want this all to happen. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. The implication is that if we court unhealth, if we choose not to be engaged in the Christian community, in the body of Christ, that we are then susceptible to the cunning and schemes of falsehood, which leads not to life but to diminishment. We are easily blown then to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. We are subject to the latest fads and so on and so forth if we are not fully engaged in the life of the, of the people of God in the Christian community. By the way, behind those um, human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes, of course, is the great schemer himself, the devil, who uses humanity in his own way at times, getting us in his, in his grasp and using us to, to bring about deceitful schemes that promise life but don't deliver. So this is mission critical. Unity and diversity creating maturity. That's the the main thrust of Ephesians 4. Let's then think next about two applications of this in our lives as we kind of try to to bring this home. The first thing I want to say is is the application of belonging. The people in this room, if they are in Christ, are people who belong to you and you belong to them. They are people with whom you are united because of what, because what you share in common, which is Christ himself, is far greater, more central, more foundational in your life than anything that you don't have in common, than any difference that you have with the people around you. However great those differences may be, they are dwarfed by what you share in common, who is Christ. You see people around this room are people, the people, uh, these are people with whom your life is bound. What do I mean by that? Well, your pain is your, is, your pain is their pain. Your joy is their joy. Their joy is your joy. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 12. If one member of the body suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The Christian life, and you saw this in the LDI curriculum, if you uh, just went through LDI, it's not a hundred meter dash with each of us in our own lane competing with each other. It's much more like the elementary school three-legged race on the grass field. In Christ, we are bound together, and there can be no progress in this Christian way of life if we try to run alone. 
We are bound together. We are not each other's competitors. We are each other's companions. And one's burdens are not liabilities that slow others down from otherwise getting to the goal that they have in their lives. Instead, one's burdens become opportunities through which brothers and sisters in Christ can make advancement on the goal of their lives to become like Jesus. That's incredibly countercultural to think about it that way. But it's true in Jesus. The people in this room are people that are bound up with you and you with them. Now, around this room, you see people of various ethnic backgrounds, quiet people, talkative people, sick people, healthy people, hurting people, joyful people, well-off people, and people in financial need, people who are gifted in ways that you are not but would like to be gifted, people who want to be gifted like you. You see those who are more progressive and others who are more conservative, people that may be harder to enjoy sometimes and people that may find it harder to enjoy you. There are people you'd like to talk to after the service and people that you'd probably rather avoid after the service. People who share your interests and people who don't. People who are older than you and people who are younger than you, except for one of you in the room on either end. I don't know who you are. <laughs> but above everything else, you see people whom Christ has welcomed and embraced. Just like he's welcomed and embraced you. And these people belong to you. And you belong to them. The second application is that the people in this room are people who need you. And you need them. The eye cannot say to the hand, Paul says, I have no need of you. Nor again can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. The finish line in this three-legged race of the Christian life is mature manhood, verse 13. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And to get there, we all have to play our part, each part working properly. We've all been given gifts, and these gifts are not to make our name great. We're already whole and complete in Jesus. But these gifts are meant to bless, grow, and serve the people in this room, the body of Christ, and in so doing, to bring God great glory. A symphony cannot be played by one violin or even just a few. Rather, it takes a variety of instruments in a full orchestra to create something beautiful and rich and harmonious. We are all necessary. We are all gospel servants, which means that we are more than consumers of spiritual goods. We are needed. Our gifts, our perspective, our experience, our honesty, our pain, our time, our self-offering in relationship is needed for the body to attain the goal that God has set out for it to attain. Of course, we won't contribute perfectly in this way. We'll mess up. We'll hurt each other. We'll need to forgive and move forward. And that is the reality. But thanks be to God that he knew that reality before he designed all of this and put it in place. And that he's given us grace and resources 
the empowerment of his spirit to keep growing in the midst of the challenges, the hurt, the disappointment, the busyness, the mundaneness that Christian community can so often be. God calls us to this. So the two applications are you belong here and you are needed here. It's God's design. But I want to consider a couple of defeaters of this in our lives. The first one is resistance. That we naturally resist these truths. We resist the reality of Christ's welcome. We can be overly influenced by our culture's worship of individualism and self-sufficiency. We actually prefer the 100-meter dash. It's cleaner. I can be in greater control. It's more predictable. We know where we're going. It's so much easier just to take care of our needs and of our, the needs of our own with our hard-earned resources. It seems, doesn't it, at times that the one great sin within our culture is the sin of appearing to have or admitting need. And that can seep its way into the church as well. We'll give off the sense that we've got it all together and we'll interact with people on our terms. We can dutifully come to church for consuming sermons and such, but not to get further engaged. The messy stuff of relationships and responsibilities and bearing one another's burdens requires that we give up too much control. It makes us terribly uncomfortable, perhaps. Or maybe there's fear underneath this, resist, underneath this resistance. We, we won't know what to say, how to respond to or handle someone else's need or pain. So we can stand aloof or stay hunkered down or just keep to our own, our own nuclear family. Often it can be the case that what community we do have in our lives is actually community that is chosen or handpicked by us which is a form of control that's somewhat socially acceptable because we'll handpick those that we really like, those that sort of match with our way of life and doing things. Or maybe it's the fact that we just don't really have time. Our calendar is so full and overprogrammed. Remember one of the key insights of the pandemic, at least at the beginning, was when everything just got taken off of our calendars. I wonder how many of us have just filled them back up just as much in this post-pandemic era than they were before. Honestly, too, if we were thinking in the mind of the enemy who wants to undermine the life of the church, perhaps his greatest tool is to render our calendar so full that it makes it difficult to see, let alone to attend to, the people in this room alongside of us. Or at least it makes their lives not impact ours in any meaningful way way. Often we are simply individualistic Christians, which of course is an oxymoron, but it is a subtle and overt temptation for every one of us. There is resistance as a defeater of belonging and, and being needed. And I should say that this resistance doesn't just hurt us as individuals, it actually hurts the entire community. It leads to isolation, by the way, as well. One of our enemy's greatest tactics in undermining our Christian lives, I would say from pastoral experience, that invariably when someone falls and begins to walk into life-distorting and diminishing sin in their lives, it's almost always accompanied by isolation. By being sealed off in their own world. And it's in that isolation that we become vulnerable, easier, easier prey 
to the, the devil that prowls around like a roaring lion. Together we are far stronger. So we resist, and it hurts us, and it hurts the community that we, that we belong to. But the second defeater is doubt. We doubt that we're needed. We doubt that we belong. And our enemy feeds on these doubts. We hear and believe messages like this. You don't belong and you never will. You're a, a poser. You're not sincere enough. If people really knew and then fill in the blank, then there'd be no place for you here. Your marriage or your family is just too messed up. You're too worldly, too addicted, too numb, too depressed, too full of doubt or anxiety. You can't give anything here. You've screwed up too many times. And we hear this lie over and over again. You don't belong. And you're certainly not needed. You don't have any gifts that could really be of any value to this place, especially compared to that person over there. You're not good for much. You don't know your Bible. You don't know how to pray. You're a half-hearted believer. What could you possibly bring to these people in this way? Look, I know I'm being a little tough here. I'm, I'm being hyperbolic at some level. But I know that for so many of us, those voices are not that far from the truth, are they? There's an enemy who wants us to come to believe those voices. When I was a ninth grader, just heading into my first year at high school, and I went to a high school in Colorado Springs that was on the Air Force Academy, but because they got cheap land from the federal government in the 50s to build a high school, but we all lived in a neighborhood, a freeway right away. So my mom drove me to soccer tryouts my ninth grade year. This is before school started in the fall, and I show up, and I look down at the field, and I'm standing in the parking lot, and I'm thinking, I don't think I'm supposed to be here. And so I walk back over to the payphone, put a quarter in, call my mom, and I, think, and I say, Mom, I need you to come pick me up. And so she drives back and picks me up, and that was the end of my soccer career. Now, to be fair, <laughs> um, to be fair, I played soccer in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade for the Lightning Bolts, and we won one game in three years. I did not play in seventh or eighth grade while my friends were on these great, you know, club teams and, uh, you know, building up their skills. So I probably didn't belong there. I think I might have made the right call. But if any of you are walking into the church and hearing those voices and tempted to kind of check out or not come in, I want you to know that they are absolutely, fundamentally untrue. If you are in Christ, you belong to his body, and you are needed. And you might say, well, how do you know that I'm needed? And I would say, well, let's go back to our text in verse 7, which I've already read for you. But grace was given to each one of us. There is not one of you here in Christ who is left out of that phrase, each one. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, you and I may struggle with the measure of Christ's gift, which he gave to us. But let me tell you, he didn't make a mistake. He knew what he was doing. And he gave you gifts according to the measure that he wanted to in the kinds of gifts that he wanted to so that you could contribute to the body of Christ. And let me say this. We fight these defeaters of resistance and of doubt when we look to Christ by faith. We take our eyes off of ourselves. We shut down those false voices that go on in our head. And we gaze upon Jesus because it is Christ who welcomes us into his family and Christ who gifts us according to his grace to belong to his family and to contribute to his family 
by his spirit. If you doubt this today, if you're resisting the truth of who you are and what you have to bring into the body of Christ, I want to exhort you to look to Jesus by faith because his calling on your life is sure, sure, sure and certain. The gifts that he has given to you are real and present. And his welcome of you, which is so radical and profound, has never been taken away. And he is, by the way, the head of the church, the great shepherd of the sheep. And it's this reality of his welcome, his embrace, his gifting, his promises that dispels our resistance or melts our resistance and dispels our doubts, which are real. In Romans 15, verse 7, the climax of Romans, Paul writes, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The people in this building right now and those who were here earlier and who will be here later today who form together the local church that is Park Street Church, we are bound together in a new humanity in Christ. And we are not just bound together at Park Street. We are bound with all Christians around this city and around the world. But I focus in a bit on the local church to make this more bite-sized so that we can, this is the place where we get to apply and live out these things primarily. But of course, we express them broadly with the full body of Christ around the globe. But we are one body bound together under one head, and we need one another to grow to maturity. We cannot become like Jesus unless we do this together. That is the truth. Yes, we're resistors. Yes, we're doubters. But Christ has embraced us and then calls us to embrace one another. We are to be the reminder to one another of the divine welcome that we've received in Jesus. We are to, in that reminder of that welcome, in that embrace of one another, we are to help each other fight our resistance and our doubt and to become more and more the one body that exists for the glory of God. Christ has welcomed us. The logic of Romans 15, 7 is, therefore we must welcome one another. And this is a welcome, by the way, that pursues and sees and empathizes and understands, embraces and cares for, and of course, above all, serves. This is a welcome that is manifest in the, the way of the cross, the way of love in the body of Jesus. This is our calling, our vocation as the people of God. For over 200 years, as we've welcomed new members into Park Street Church, we've asked them a question about their commitment to Christ and their willingness to serve in this body, and they answer and they say, I do. And then we turn to the congregation, to the body, and we ask this question. Do you, the members of this church, affectionately receive those, these candidates into this communion of believers? Do you welcome them to join you in all the blessings of the gospel and on your part engage to watch over them, bear their burdens, seek their edification as long as they shall continue among us? Do you covenant to hold their peace and welfare dear to you and to help them as the Lord may enable you by your sympathy, godly counsel, practical acts of love, and your prayers? And we answer with a resounding, we do. And as we do this, as we embrace and extend the welcome of Christ to members of his body in this room right now around us, however different they may be from us and we may be from them, 
their resistance and doubts will be diminished, and ours will as well. And as you're seeking to do this with those around you, as you seek to live the way of the cross in the community of Christ, the great news is that as you're pouring your life out, everybody else in the room is pouring their life out for you. It works in concert together, each part working properly, building itself up in love. And the devil will be thwarted in our heads and in the world. And the craftiness and defeat, deceitful schemes will be resisted, and we will grow to maturity to, to, to stand firm in the midst of the wind and the waves of the culture around us. And we will become like Jesus together. And God's glory will be advanced as we live out the new humanity that we have been called uniquely to be in this world in Jesus. A beautiful, compelling, supernatural, not just sociological reality that is manifest to the watching world. They will know that you are Christians, Jesus says. How? By your love for one another. You belong. You're needed in this unity, in diversity, that is growing to maturity, that is the church. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and for this gift of a family we confess our resistance. We confess our doubt. Lord, we say we do believe. Help our unbelief. We pray that you would exalt or lift up your son Jesus and that you would lift our eyes up to him, the one who has embraced us and gifted us and called us to be a family. How we thank you for this gift. We ask that we could live into it more and more and more for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.